Let's uh, begin our time uh, this morning in prayer. We thank you, Father, for this great privilege and honor, again, to speak before your people. And we thank you that we can gather together and rejoice in song and in praise and in prayer and also to study your precious word. And Father, prayerfully, all hearts and minds are one. You can listen clearly to the Spirit, and clearly we can learn and grow. May he teach us today, and may we be teachable. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Words cannot express my gratitude uh, to John MacArthur and to uh, both of the Marks uh, who were responsible and Gail's uh, kindness, uh, just wonderful, wonderful. And I thank you all for this privilege. And also, uh, those wonderful saints of family of faith, those who were able to uh, take time off and to drive up here and to support, support me as a, a rich and marvelous blessing indeed. Thank you all so much. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Do you realize today that you are totally free and totally equipped? That God hasn't shortchanged you or me one bit? Well, if you don't know that, you will today. And it was a good day for you to come to chapel. Because I have some good news for you. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Every single believer in the world, every single believer this moment has every single thing that you need in Christ beginning at the moment of your salvation. You have everything that you need to live the Christian life in a godly way. You don't need to look for anything else. You don't need to experience anything else. You already possess what you need. In fact, in these first four verses, we can see at least seven great spiritual privileges that we possess at the moment of our salvation. Number one, a precious faith. A precious faith. Is the faith precious to you? Do you really cherish the faith that you profess to hold? I certainly hope so, because it is a precious faith. 
Number two, a faith that is shared among all believers. All believers. What, what really, uh, I'm just going to go off the beaten path for a moment, what really, really bothers me a great deal is any kind of racial distinctions being made among God's people. Simply because the precious faith that is given to us in Christ eliminates all of that madness. It is a faith that is shared among all believers. It didn't say all white believers, all black believers, all oriental believers, all Latino believers, all believers. So there is no racial distinction, there is no class envy. And I, I'm tired of hearing people trying to make distinctions that aren't there and holding seminars on race relations. We don't have that nonsense at our church. Prayerfully, you don't have that nonsense here. We are all one in Christ, and we need to start seeing life from the biblical perspective. Only from the biblical perspective. You may not like chitlins or chicken wings, that's fine. I can understand that. I'm sure that uh, if, you, if you serve me liver, we would have a problem. So there are personal distinctions, personal choices and things that we make. But we're not going to fight over it. We're not going to divide over it because this precious faith is shared among all believers. So forget the racial nonsense. Don't even let that stuff come out of your mouth or mind or heart. You don't need that foolishness. Let the world deal with that madness. The third benefit that you and I share is that we have grace and peace in an ever-increasing measure. God's grace just continues, God's peace just continues to increase in our lives. I'm convinced most believers don't really believe that or know this or really function with this in mind. And I don't see how you can function at all. I know your life is grieved, needlessly I might add. Fourth benefit, privilege. All things that are needful to live the Christian life in a godly way. All things, every single thing we already possess. The moment of salvation, we are now capable of living the Christian life in a godly way. Amen. It's just that simple. You already have it. Pray for strength. You have strength. Lord, please help me to live this Christian life in a godly way. And the Lord would say, do it. You, you already possess everything you need to do it, so do it. And I'm going to show you why in a minute that sometimes we don't do it. Fifth privilege is abundant promises from God. We have these great and precious promises. We already have them. We already possess them. What else? Number six, His divine nature, the indwelling Holy Spirit. You already have the Holy Spirit. I hope no one in here is praying for the Holy Spirit. Please, you don't have to. You already possess Him. He is in you forever. And last, freedom from the decay and the ruin that lust produces. 
You are free. You are totally free. You are totally equipped to live the Christian life in a godly way. You do not have to succumb to the lust that traps this world. That that places every single non-converted person under bondage. You and I do not have to live that way anymore. We have been free from that, completely free from that. Completely free. Either that or Peter's lying and, you know, I don't believe Peter's lying. In fact, I know he's not lying. Let God be true and what? Well, I see this section knows it. Every man a liar. With all of the provisions that God has supplied every one of us who are his sons and daughters, then why is it that so many professing believers seem to have so many problems experiencing the very life that God has already given to us? I've been a Christian for two decades. I've seen and have been in ebbs and flows for many, many years. Seen them and been them. And I didn't have the privilege of being in a Bible teaching church when I first, when I got saved. And uh, you just kind of made it the best way you could, which was no way, really. And for a long time, I, I just suffered trying to figure out what is it that the Lord wants me to do? I would go to pastors and they couldn't help. I kept staying in the Word and the Lord in His grace and mercy continued to show me as He would show any one of us and every one of us in here His clear plan. And as He continued to show me the plan throughout those formidable years of failures and successes, and I began to realize that many of the things I've been praying for, I already had. I just didn't know what to do with it. And when I realized years later how wonderful God's provisions are for all of us, I just couldn't help but to tell as many people as I possibly could. Because the devil and your flesh and my flesh does not want to believe that we already have everything we need to live this Christian life in a godly way. And many of the so-called struggles and problems that so many people are facing have already been dealt with. And instead of looking for reasons why people are struggling outside of ourselves, as Peter will make it clear, we need to own up to our own responsibility. The responsibility that we're doing things that we know we shouldn't do because, one, we want to, and two, most people aren't growing even though we have everything we need. Why is it so many have so many problems? Let's take a look at verse 5. And besides this, besides all the privileges that we have, he says what? Giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge. The faith described in the first four verses Peter says you need to add to your faith. You and I, we need to lavish upon this wonderful faith that is given to us in Christ. This wonderful relationship that we share in the Lord. We need to lavish upon our faith. The first thing is virtue. And the reality is that the believer must contribute an all-out intense effort to apply 
the graces that we have in Christ for them to be experienced in our daily lives. We must apply diligence. We must discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. When Peter said giving all, he means that we as believers are to bring it alongside or to contribute something to our great faith that is ours in Christ. We need to contribute an all-out intense effort, friends, of utilization of the Christian character virtues in our daily lives, beginning at verse 5. God is interested in building Christian character, but character is not built without our cooperation and effort. You just can't float in the Christian life. None of us can. There must be a determined purpose in our lives based on the foundation of the reality that we have everything that we need in Christ. You lack nothing. Nothing. It is to realize the total conduct of the Christian character in the sense of actualizing our saved position and then fulfilling it by that application of the position in daily living what grace has opened up for us. It is because of the grace of God. The reality of these great truths and privileges that this is the reason, this is reason enough why we should be motivated to the greatest zeal possible to live for the Master. I ask you, do we really understand, do we truly understand what we have in Christ? Do we really understand it? Have we sat down and literally read the Scriptures concerning this issue of salvation? Have we come to a settled persuasion concerning who we are and what we have? Because if we haven't, that's where the conflict begins. The confusion begins. Everything rises and falls on your belief in the Word of God. If we have contemplated all that we have in Christ and truly believed what God has said, this is motivation enough for us all to give all diligence to apply the Christian character virtues in our lives. So what is the real reason why so many professing believers don't grow? Are all of the common excuses that are being offered up to condone a failure to grow spiritually acceptable to God? Let's see what the text says, because the real reason is given in the text, is not in the, 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 the chair of the, the psychiatrist or the, the psychologist. That's not where the answer lies. The answer is in the text. Peter commands the believer to add to our faith. The reason why so many professing Christianity today refuse to grow spiritually is because they make no effort to grow in the graces, in the spiritual characters, the Christian character virtues 
that are given to us in Christ. We are not to be, and we cannot afford to be stagnant and lazy and foolish about what is ours. We, are, we, we have great possessions in Christ. Great possessions. Infinite power and mercy and grace that God gives us to live this life. We are to be lights and not matches. We are to be bright, shining bright. And not ashamed of it either. Come what may. Our faith is not some dry theology divorced from action and application. Our faith is a divine work of God that affects the whole person. Would you understand this point? Salvation is a divine work of God which affects your life and mine. It is not a human effort trying to get God to supplement my religious will. It is a divine work of God affecting the whole life. We are to concentrate our efforts in this life with intensity to add to our faith. And what is that? We are to add to our faith a godly lifestyle consisting of virtue, which means moral and holy excellence. Purity of life, the virtue that Peter refers to, is a life that is godly in character, that is holy in character, and every single one of us in this building today should be living a life of virtue. We should be lavishing these things upon our faith. Not a single one of us should be looking for excuses not to live this way. That's where all this depression and sadness and grief comes in, and confusion and error. Because we're not making the effort that we should. And I don't think that any hand should go up in here. I don't think we'd be honest with ourselves if, if we would say that we are making effort that we could. There's always room to grow. I mean, these are continual. This isn't something, okay, well, I've grown enough here, let me stop. You stop and you're going to go in reverse. And as Peter said in this chapter, it will get to the place where you are forgotten. You were purged from your old sins. We have to keep going. We have to keep growing with intensity. We have to keep lavishing upon our faith this virtue. And this virtue must also affect the thinking of believers, too. We can't have a virtuous life and a sloppy mind. Paul said in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, just, pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, you think on these things. He tells you what to think about. And these are the virtues of the Christian life. These are the things that we can think about. And I'm tired of people trying to convince us that we can't control what we think about. Don't listen to these fools. You can control your thoughts. You can easily think evil as you can good. We choose to do one or the other. You start meditating on things virtuous, I guarantee you, what will happen is you'll start seeing a lot of those things you shouldn't be thinking about, and God will say, now stop it. So you can constantly think about the virtuous things. You don't have to worry about these things being a stumbling anymore. And if we say, yes, Lord, we'll stop this and stop this and stop this, and we'll begin to realize, hey, I can think virtuously. I can. 
just have to get a big chainsaw and start cutting out a lot of that junk that causes us to think wrong. Cutting the cords with everything in our lives that are causing us to, that, that are, that are injecting things in our minds that will cause us to always think the wrong way. Don't believe your own lying mind. You can think right. We all can. We are to add to this knowledge. Intelligent insight. There's nothing worse than a stupid Christian. I, I, I just, there are a few things worse than a stupid Christian, especially when you have the mind of Christ and it's not necessary for you to be a bumpkin or blockhead, as Luther would call people. Luther used that term blockhead. I was surprised. I didn't know he used that term. I thought there was something that described Charlie Brown in the 60s. I didn't think Luther used that, but he described uh, people who didn't appreciate children as blockheads. He did. That's a good term, too. <laughs> we need to be submitted to the Holy Spirit of God and to the Word of God. And if we are, then we will see the truth in its proper perspective. It is a knowledge of God that comes from God and His Word. This means that we must spend much time I want to emphasize that point. I hear people saying, well, you know, if you just give God one minute of, of quality time. What in the world is one minute of quality time? Why do we, why don't we say, let me give one minute of quality time to television. That's it. Okay. Why do we got to give God all the scraps? He's given us the best. We give him scraps. We run around saying we don't have time. We got plenty of time. We do whatever else we want to do. We always seem to find time to do whatever we want to do, whether it's things profitable or not. I know, I know we all do that. We find time to do whatever we want. We'll rearrange schedules and change this and change that. Yeah, if you want to do something, you think it's important enough, you'll move heaven and earth to do that if you think it's important. I suggest tonight that if, if you can control your trigger thumb on your TV control or your index finger, if you're so inclined that you don't have the you know, TV control, and if you kept it off for a week, if you can stand it, you would have plenty of time to study. I see a lot of smiles like, I ain't turning my television on. Like, you don't have to. <laughs> Next time these folks come and ask you, well, I'm not, could you pray for me? I'm having problems saying, well, how much TV time do you watch? And you hear that preacher talk about that. I'm not saying it's wrong to watch television. I'm just saying it's wrong to watch it all the time. At, at the expense of knowing God's truth. I mean, this isn't legalism. This is common sense. This is common sense. If you spend six hours in front of a television and 16 minutes, you know, in front of a Bible, and someone like me comes along and says, why don't you turn off the tube? Don't cry. Legalism, legalists. No, common sense prevails in this issue. you got plenty of time. You and I both do. Let's stop playing games with our minds. So we are to even lavish and add to this great faith. What else? Verse 6, to knowledge temperance. To temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness. Temperance means self-control, a disciplined life. Again, the overall aspect of the believer's life is a life of discipline, a lifestyle that holds 
the passions in check. Uh, Passions love to come out, and you can name them, all of them. The Holy Spirit, according to Galatians 5.23, the temperance, the the self-control that Paul wrote about, it, it quelches these passions, these propensities for non-discipline. We must have mastery over those. And you know what? You do. You already have it. You already have it. You already have it! This is, you don't have to look for it. You already have it! We just have to lavish our faith these things. It is a work of the Spirit, no doubt. We are to add patience, which means endurance, in the midst of testings and trials. Now, I would submit to you that very few of us, if any of us, compared to, well, compared to some countries that are not too far away from us right now, or to most of the record of those in Scripture, uh, are suffering at all. Oh, I had a flat, I'm suffering. No, everyone gets flats. If you drive bald tires, you're going to have flats. If you run over nails, you're going to have a flat. There's no reason to start acting like a martyr because we have a flat tire. Have the church to pray for us that we grow stronger in the Lord because we're suffering because we have a flat tire. Please. Everything is in the suffering. A lot of things are just a natural, normal part of life. Do you think that only Christians get cancer? Oh, I don't know. He's talking about the sea word. Well, all of a sudden, you, you determine that you're suffering for the Lord, and most of the suffering in the Bible is for Christ. A direct relationship to Christ. New Testament. You just see it for yourself. And everything that we go through is in the suffering for Christ. But for those who are, he says, be patient. And that means endurance in the midst, not around, not through, but in the midst of testings and trials. God gives the ability to stick to the spiritual objectives in life no matter what. Divine perseverance. I'm not saying that none of us have suffered. I'm saying that probably not many, if at all. If you compare what we would today call suffering to the biblical model of suffering, 99 times of, 99% of it is directly related to your relationship to Jesus Christ, persecution from someone opposing you. That's the suffering, not the flat tire and, and not the natural course of death. Unless someone kills you for Christ's sake, that's different. Or someone comes and hits you or slanders you. That can be considered suffering. But if you're watching Monday Night Football and the two blows out, that's not suffering. There's no need to be praying about that. We are to add godliness or holiness of life and Christ-likeness or devoutness to God. And we already saw in verse 3 that through God's divine power, He's already given us at the moment of our salvation all things pertaining to life and godliness. So we have the capacity to live the kind of life that God commands because he's given us the power to do it. God says, I want you to live holy because I'm holy. It's not time to go, how do I do that? It's time to go, thank you, Lord, because you give me the power to do that. And that's something that I should want to do and something that I'm going to make every effort to do. 
Not tomorrow, today. We are to add to these in verse 7, to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, charity. Now, brotherly kindness and brotherly love are the same Greek word, the Philadelphia. Same, same word. In fact, I want to look at that for a few moments with the few minutes I have left. Brotherly kindness, which means fondness for a brother or sister in Christ. A genuine holy. When I emphasize holy, I'm talking about pure. You can have a relationship between brothers and sisters that's holy. We talk about love. We're not talking about the world's definition of love. You would lose your mind. Because you don't have that type of an emotional attachment to every single person. When you think about the definition of the word love from the world's perspective, what comes to mind? This section right here, what comes to mind? Can't hear you. This section, you guys, you folks, that's right, right over here. So I have to come down? What was that? Sex? That Which leads to that. So when we talk about brotherly love, when we talk about holy affection, do you have this kind of an attachment with everybody? Six of you don't. The rest of you aren't really sure. Hello? Do you have that kind of an emotional attachment to every saint? Of course you don't. I hope not. I hope not. To think this one through. I hope not. Well, let's see what happens with uh, brotherly love. I'm just going to read the passages. I, I imagine this is on tape, isn't it? Okay, good. Romans 12:10. This brotherly kindness is a love that cherishes one another. Do you cherish the saints around you? I mean, really? Well, just think about it. Paul said in Romans 12.10, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Kindly affection, cherishing one another with brotherly love, brotherly kindness. In 1 Thessalonians 4.9, Paul says, But as touching or concerning brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. So you know what? You're taught of God how to do this. God has already taught us how to cherish one another, how to love one another with a brotherly love, with a brotherly kindness, with an affection. So God has already, you know, isn't it wonderful that God has provided everything? I mean, everything. He tells you how to love, and he says, I've given you the power to do it. What's the problem? Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. So it's never to cease. It's never to cease. It is to continue. The impact that any group of people could have on an unsaved world with this kind of love. It would be staggering to the unsaved to see that. They don't know anything about divine love. And we possess it. And God teaches us how to do it. We could tear this world up. Just by showing them that the love is real among ourselves. 
1 Peter 1.22, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth, mm, can't escape that, through the Spirit, unto unfeigned, unhypocritical love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Man, that's rich language. This kind of love is to be real without pretense and selfish desires. You don't love people for you. You love people because the love of God is in your heart. And I tell you, friends, let's start in the church. Let's start among believers with this love. And then it will impact everything we do in evangelism. Speaking and ministering to those who are lost. When they come into the churches, what do they see? Over and over again, we've had people say, one of the things that we, we know about Family Faith Bible Church, these people love one another. And I said, that's a good sign. I mean, I like them to say they teach sound doctrine. Hey, that's good. That's good, good for me to hear. But it would be much better for me to hear the people love each other. A lot better. Because without love, all oh, this is meaningless. Then we are to add to that charity, the love of deliberate choice, Calvary's love, a love that is foundational and it acts amongst believers. Also, it is love that is to be reciprocated. You see, Christian love is a gimme, 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 love me, love me, love me, love me. No, no, no. That's not, that's not. Biblical love, that's selfishness. God's love is reciprocal. God demonstrated the greatest example of love by giving us his son and has left that as the supreme example of how believers are to treat each other. First John chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. God loved us first. He still loves us. And He loved us not because we loved Him first. We respond to Him because He loved us. Not to gain His love. Send His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought, we owe a debt, an obligation to love one another. We are obligated. We owe a debt. You owe a debt to one another to love each other. Verse 20, if a man say, I love God and hated his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Can't do it. Won't do it. Impossible. And this commandment, love is commanded from God. This commandment we have from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. That eliminates this whole emotional gig about why I should love a person because I have an emotional attachment. If God commands you to do it, there is no emotional attachment attached to that imperative. He says you love them because I told you to, not because you feel a certain way about it. Then Peter says again, Second Peter 1 verse 8, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? Don't you know Christians that are barren? They're dry, spiritually dried up. 
There's always low, all the time. Not, not sporadically. You know, they're walking in the Spirit, they're growing, and they have this downtime. No, they're down all the time. Fruitless, useless. Could you imagine a Christian being useless? Fruitless? It is these virtues that prevent us from being that way. Fruitless and useless. These virtues are to be in us and are to be overflowing out of us. The language of Scripture does not speak of this abundant life in trickle-down terminology. This speaks of the Spirit-filled life overflowing and ministering to all others around us. Speaks of these qualities that should be integrated in our lives. Since these virtues are your possession, and if they are operating in your life, in an ever-increasing measure, listen, you're going to grow until you die or rapture. That's it. That, that's you, And I think you're going to grow in heaven somewhat, because God's going to be God and we're still not. And so there's always going to be room to grow. And one thing's for certain, you're going to grow down here as long as you're down here. And the minute you don't think you need to grow, you're going back. You're blind. Which is what he says. I didn't say it. That's what he says in verse 9. He that lacketh these things is, is blind. You see, if these virtues are increasing in us continually... They will keep us from becoming useless and fruitless, ineffective and unproductive in your walk in Christ. I, see, I, I, can, I can hear right now, I can hear the person say, wait, 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 see, see, see you're, you're such a hard taskmaster preacher. You, you come, you bring your big, big giant sword and just wail away. You don't understand that a lot of these people go through a lot of, of problems in life. Oh, yeah, like no one else does, okay? Now, let me, let, me, let me say something to those who may have that mentality, unfortunately. Your solution had better be in this book. Or you are encouraging that kind of failure in that person's life. I am not here to give you psycho vomit. I'm not wasting my time. You know, although our church is real, real near to Shula's Glass Palace, we have no association and, and the thing is, you, you, don't, you don't need this kind of liberalism and, and, frankly, just false teaching. You need to find your solution in the Word of God. If we believe that the Word of God is sufficient, then it's sufficient. And if we don't, let's throw this thing away and go home and forget about it. Because we're wasting our time if we don't believe this Bible to be totally sufficient for every need of the believer's life. And if I'm stumbling and falling, I know where the problem is, and you do too. And all we have to do, as Peter will tell us, is, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence, make your calling and election sure. You know what he does? He takes you right back to the beginning, making all diligence. That's the solution. And there is no other solution. There's no $50, $60 an hour listening to some guy lie to you about the lies you told him. And the things you haven't told them. No, it's going to God who knows the hearts of all of us to say, Yes, Lord, I have sinned. Please forgive me. 
and let's get back on course again. I repent and I will grow. It is a daily walk with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that produces fruitful living. And when we concentrate our efforts on our relationship with Christ, then fruit will be evident. It will be seen. Verse 9, But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. And when I read this, it scared me years ago, that you could get, any believer can get to a state where we would forget that we were saved? That's blindness. Man. And if we fail to develop in these virtues, these graces, that's what's going to happen. Blind. Blind. It, it could be translated to blind with pride or conceit, to render foolish or stupid. All of these elements are at the heart of a failure to grow spiritually. It is ourselves wanting to manifest our own will rather than following God's will, which is always best for us. All the time, he knows what's best. Because he's a wonderful God. He is the wonderful God. Not only is the person blind, but nearsighted. Nearsighted people can only see what's in front of them. And I think this is a metaphor for a self. It's about as far as you could see in front of your own nose. Person who is spiritually nearsighted, only sees themselves, cares about themselves, have no concept of the big picture of God's plan for anything. They never look to the future glory to come because they are so self-centered. And if this state persists in the life, then the blindness becomes so great that you forget the cleansing of God that he did in your life. As one commentator wrote, this is a willful blindness and forgetfulness. If they would look back to the life of sin from which they were delivered and look ahead to the eternal blessings God has promised, they would see the great advantage of developing Christian character to the fullest extent possible. Let me tell you something, friends. What kept the early church faithful was the hope to come of Christ, not down here. Constantly looking for the blessed hope. Oh, you read, you read, you read Titus and you read 1 John, you read... The Gospels, you just keep reading the epistles. And the hoper is upward. It's, it's upward. It's in the coming of Christ. And how it has an adverse effect on how we live down here. If you're not looking for Christ to come, if, if everything is down here for you, I can see why you're miserable. I hope you're not. I hope no one... I, I'm convinced that most people in here are having a wonderful time in the Lord. I, I have to believe that. Even if I'm wrong. You already know whether it's true or not. I can't answer that. And I learned not to, not to assume much of anything anymore. Verse 10, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. That's how you escape from the dilemma. You go right back where you've fallen, and you fell at the place where you didn't make all diligence to grow. He says, and here's a shocker. I mean, you think it was shocking this far. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, ye shall never stumble. Christians are stumbling all over the place. You read this passage and you interpret it and say, look, if you're growing in these Christian virtues, the Bible says emphatically you will never stumble. And they're going, I believe it. Yes, I do. Yeah, you don't believe it at all. We don't believe it. We, our minds are already programmed to believe that we can't live in this way. And that, that's tragic, because again, it goes against the grain of everything that God has given to us. Go right back to the place where you stop growing and apply the diligence. Don't wait, don't pray, 
Just do it. Lord, please make me. No, just do it. He says, you already have what you need now. Do it. We all do. We all do. We need to grow in grace. Apply that intensity. No one should be secure at all in their profession if their lifestyle does not give credibility to their words. By continuance in these virtues, we will never fall. We won't be stumbling and tripped up over everything that comes along if we continue in these virtues. And you will be sure of your calling and of your election of God and of your inheritance in the kingdom of Christ to come. That's my message to you today, my beloved. And I thank you again for your time. And may God continue to bless this great, great school. Amen.